Section 6 of A Lady's Visit to the Gold Diggings of Australia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Lady's Visit to the Gold Diggings of Australia by Alan Clacy. Section 6 Eagle Hawk Gully before commencing an account of our operations at the Eagle Hawk, it will be necessary to write a few words in description of our gold-digging party there. Their Christian names will be sufficient distinction, and will leave their incognito undisturbed. This party, as I have said before, consisted of five gentlemen, including my brother, of the latter I shall only say that he was young and energetic, more accustomed to use his brains than his fingers, yet with a robust frame, and muscles well strengthened by the various exercises of boating, cricketing, etc., with which our embryo collegians attempt to prepare themselves for keeping their terms. Frank, who from being a married man, was looked up to as the head of our rather juvenile party, was of a quiet and sedate disposition, rather given to melancholy, for which in truth he had cause. His marriage had taken place without the sanction, or rather in defiance of the wishes of his parents, for his wife was portionless, and in a station a few grades, as they considered, below his own. Moreover, Frank himself was not of age. Private income, independent of his parents, he had none. A situation as clerk in a merchant's office was his only resource, and during three years he had eked out his salary to support a delicate wife, whose ill health was a never-failing source of anxiety and expense. Two infants and himself, an unexpected legacy of five hundred pounds from a distant relative at last seemed to open a brighter prospect before them, and leaving his wife and children with their relatives, he quitted England to seek in a distant land a better home than all his exertions could procure for them in their own country. I never felt surprised or offended at his silent and preoccupied manner accompanied at times by great depression of spirits, for it was an awful responsibility for one so young, brought up as he had been in the greatest luxury, as the eldest son of a wealthy merchant, to have not only himself, but others nearest and dearest to maintain by his own exertions. William, a tall, slight, and rather delicate-looking man, is the next of our party whom I shall mention. His youth had been passed at Christ's Hospital. This he quitted with the firm conviction, in which all his friends of course participated, that he had been greatly wronged by not having been elected a Grecian, and a rich uncle, incited by the before-mentioned piece of injustice, took him under his care, and promised to settle him in the world as soon as a short apprenticeship to business had been gone through. A sudden illness put a stop to all these schemes. The physicians recommended change of air, 
a warmer climate, a trip to Australia. William had relatives residing in Melbourne, so the journey was quickly decided upon, a cabin taken, and the invalid rapidly recovering beneath the exhilarating effects of the sea breezes. How refreshing are they to the sick! How caressingly does the soft sea air fan the wan cheeks of those exhausted, with a life passed amidst the brick walls and crowded, noisy streets of a city, and William, who at first would have laughed at so ridiculous a supposition, ere the four months' voyage was terminated, had gained strength and spirits sufficient to make him determined to undertake a trip to the diggings. He was a merry, light-hearted fellow, fonder of a joke than hard work, yet ever keeping a sharp eye to the main chance, as the following anecdote will prove. One day, during our stay in Melbourne, he came to me, and said, laughing, "'Well, I've got rid of one of the bad habits I had on board the—' which was my reply. "'That old frock-coat I used to wear in the cold weather, whilst we rounded the Cape. A fellow down at Lyaditz admired the cut, asked me to sell it. I charged him four guineas, and walked into town in my shirt-sleeves. Soon colonised, eh? Richard was a gay young fellow of twenty, the only son of a rich member of the stock exchange. In a fit of spleen, because the parental regulations required him always to be at home by midnight, he shipped himself off to Australia, trusting that so energetic a step would bring the governor to his senses. He was music-mad, and appeared to know every opera by heart, and wearied us out of all patience with his everlasting humming of Siakin low dice, non piamesta, etc. Octavius, was the eighth son of a poor professional man, who, after giving him a good general education, sent him with a small capital to try his fortune in the colonies. For this he was in every way well fitted, being possessed of a strong constitution, good common sense, and simple, inexpensive habits. He was only nineteen, and the youngest of the male portion of our party. The day after our arrival at the diggings, being Sunday, we passed in making ourselves comfortable, and devising our future plans. We determined to move from our present quarters, and pitch our tents higher up in the gully, near Montgomery's store. This we accomplished the first thing on Monday morning, and at about a hundred yards from us, our four shipmates also fixed themselves, which added both to our comfort and security. A few words of their introduction. One of them was a Scotchman, who wished to make enough capital at the mines to invest in a sheep run, and as his countrymen are proverbially fortunate in the colonies, I think it possible he may some time hence be an Australian millionaire. Another of these was an architect, who was driven, as it were, to the diggings, because his profession from the scarcity of labour was at the time almost useless in Melbourne. 
the third was, or rather had been, a house-painter and decorator, who unfortunately possessed a tolerably fine voice, which led him gradually to abandon a good business to perform at concerts. Too late he found that he had dropped the substance for the shadow. Immigration seemed his only resource, so leaving a wife and large family behind, he brought his mortified vanity and ruined fortunes to begin the world anew within Australia. He was the only one whose means prevented him from taking a share in our venture, but to avoid confusion, the Scotchman subscribed twice the usual sum, thus securing double profits. The fourth was a gentleman farmer, whose sole enemy, by his account, was free trade, and who held the names Cobden and Bright in utter detestation. As soon as the tents were pitched, all set to work to unpack the dray, and after taking out sufficient flour, sugar, tea, etc., for use, the remainder of the goods were taken to the nearest store, where they were sold at an average of five times their original costs. The most profitable portion of the cargo consisted of some gunpowder and percussion caps. The day after, by good fortune, we disposed of the dray and horses for two hundred and fifty pounds, being only forty pounds less than we paid for them. As the cost of keeping horses at the diggings is very great, sometimes two or three pounds a day per head, besides the constant risk of their being lost or stolen, we were well satisfied with the bargain and never did mind young speculators, who five months previous had been utter strangers, accomplish their undertaking to themselves, or less disagreement one with another. The business settled, the next was to procure licenses, which was a walk of nearly five miles to the commissioner's tent, Bendigo, and wasted the best part of Wednesday. Meanwhile we were seriously debating about again changing our quarters. We found it almost impossible to sleep. Never before could I have imagined that a woman's voice could utter sounds sufficiently discordant to drive repose far from us, yet so it was. The gentleman christened her the amiable female. The tent of this amiable personage was situated at right angles with ours and our shipmates, so that the annoyance was equally felt. Whilst her husband was at work farther down the gully, she kept a sort of sly grog shop, and passed the day in selling and drinking spirits, swearing and smoking a short tobacco pipe at the door of her tent. She was a most repulsive-looking object, a dirty, gaudy, coloured dress hung unfastened about her shoulders, coarse black hair unbrushed, uncombed, dangled about her face, over which her evil habits had spread a genuine Bacchanalian glow, whilst in a loud masculine voice she uttered the most awful words that ever disgraced the mouth of a man ten thousand times more awful 
when proceeding from a woman's lips. But night was the dreadful time, then if her husband had been unlucky, or herself made fewer profits during the day, it was misery to be within earshot, so much so that we decided to leave so uncomfortable a neighbourhood without loss of time, and carrying our tents, etc., higher up the gully, we finally pitched them not far from the Portland stores. This was done on Thursday, and the same evening two different claims were marked out ready to commence working the next day. These claims were the usual size, eight feet square. Friday, 24. Early this morning, our late travelling companion, Joe, made his appearance with a sack full of bran, he said, on his shoulders. After a little confidential talk with William, he left the sack in our tent, as he had no other safe place to stow it away in till the bran was sold. This gave rise to no suspicion, and in excitement of digging was quite forgotten. About noon I contrived to have a damper and a large joint of baked mutton ready for the day labourers, as they styled themselves. The mutton was baked in a large camp oven suspended from three iron bars, which were fixed in the ground in the form of a triangle, about a yard apart, and were joined together at the top, at which part the oven was hung over a wood fire. This grand cooking machine was, of course, outside the tent. Sometimes I have seen a joint of meat catch fire in one of these ovens, and it is difficult to extinguish it before the fat has burnt itself away, when the meat looks like a cinder. Our butcher would not let us have less than half a sheep at a time, for which we paid eight shillings. I was no good a housekeeper enough to know how much it weighed, but the meat was very good. Flour was then a shilling a pound, or two hundred pounds weight for nine pounds in money. Sugar was one shilling sixpence, and tea three shilling sixpence. Fortunately, we were well provided with these three latter articles. The hungry diggers did ample justice to the dinner I had provided for them. They brought home a tin dish full of surface soil, which in the course of the afternoon I attempted to wash. Tin dish washing is difficult to describe. It requires a watchful eye and a skilful hand. It is the most mysterious department of the gold-digging business. The tin dish, which, of course, is round, is generally about 18 inches across the top, and 12 across the bottom, with sloping sides of 3 or 4 inches deep. The one I used was rather small. Into it I placed about half the dirt, digger's technical term for earth, or soil, that they had brought, filled the dish up with water, and then, with a thick stick, commenced making it into a batter. This was a most necessary commencement, as the soil was of a very stiff clay. I then let this batter, I know no name more appropriate for it, settle, and carefully poured off the water at the top. 
I now added some clean water, and repeated the operation of mixing it up, and after doing this several times, the dirt, of course, gradually diminishing, I was overjoyed to see a few bright specks, which I carefully picked out, and with renewed energy continued this by no means elegant work. Before the party returned to tea, I had washed out all the stuff, and procured from it nearly two pennyweights of gold dust, worth about six shillings or seven shillings. Tin dish washing is generally done beside a stream, and it is astonishing how large a quantity of dirt those who have the knack of doing it well and quickly can knock off in the course of the day. To do this, however, requires great manual dexterity, and much gold is lost by careless washing. A man once extracted ten pounds weight of the precious metal from a heap of soil, which his mate had washed too hurriedly. In the evening Joe made his reappearance, carrying another sack on his shoulders, which contained a number of empty bottles, and now, for the first time, we came initiated into the brand mystery which had often puzzled us on the road. It seemed so strange a thing to carry up to the diggings. Joe laughed at our innocence, and denied having told us anything approaching a falsehood. A slight suppression of the truth was all he would plead guilty to. I verily believe William had put him up to this dodge, to make us smile when we should have felt annoyed. Being taxed with deceit, said he, I told you two-thirds truth. There wanted but two more letters to make it brandy, and with the greatest sang-froid he drew out a small keg of brandy from the first sack, and half filled the bottles with the spirit, after which he filled them all up to the neck with water. The bottles were then corked, and any or all of them politely offered to us at the rate of thirty shillings apiece. We declined purchasing, but he sold them all during the evening, for which we were rather glad, as had they been discovered by the officials in our tent, a fine of fifty pounds would have been the consequence of our foolish comrades' good nature and joke-loving propensities. We afterwards found that Master Joe had played the same trick with our shipmates and with the two doctors, who had bought a tent and settled themselves near our old place by Montgomery's store. Saturday, 25. The two holes were bottomed, before noon, with no paying result. It had been hard work, and they were rather low-spirited about it. The rest of the day they spent in washing some surface soil, and altogether collected about one ounce and a half of gold dust, counting the little I had washed out on the Friday. In the evening it was all dried by being placed in a spade over a quick fire. We had before determined to square accounts and divide the gold every Saturday night, but this small quantity was not worth the trouble, so it was laid by in the digger's usual treasury, a German matchbox. These round boxes hold, on an average, eight ounces of gold. 
These two unproductive holes had not been very deep. The top or surface soil for which a spade or shovel is used was of clay. This was succeeded by a strata almost as hard as iron, technically called burnt stuff, which robbed the pick of its points nearly as soon as the blacksmith had steeled them at a charge of two shillings sixpence a point. Luckily for their arms, this strata was but thin, and the yellow or blue clay which followed was comparatively easy work. Here and there an awkward lump of quartz required the use of the pick. Suddenly they came to some glittering particles of yellow, which, with heartfelt delight, they hailed as gold. It was mica. Many are at first deceived by it, but it is soon distinguished by its weight, as the mica will blow away with the slightest puff. After a little useless digging among the clay, they reached the solid rock, and thus having fairly bottomed the holes to no purpose, they abandoned them. Sunday, 26. Although impossible at the diggings to keep this day with those outward observances which are customary in civilized life, we attempted to make as much difference as possible between the day of rest and that of work. Frank performed the office of chaplain, and read the morning service in the calm and serious manner which we expected from him. I was rather amused to see the alacrity with which, when this slight service was over, they all prepared to assist me in the formation of a huge plum pudding for the Sunday's dinner. Stoning plums and chopping suet seemed to afford them immense pleasure. I suppose it was a novelty, and contrary to the fact implied in the older age. Too many cooks spoiled the broth. Our pudding turned out A1. In the afternoon we strolled about and paid a visit to our shipmates. I was certainly most agreeably surprised by the quiet and order that everywhere prevailed. Monday, 27. Today our party commenced sinking in a new spot at some little distance. The first layer of black soil was removed, and on some being washed in a tin dish, it was found to contain a tolerable portion of gold, and was pronounced to be worth transporting to the tent to be regularly cradled. My first official notice of this fact was from Richard, who entered the tent humming, Swana la tromba, with a bucket full of this heavy soil in each hand. He broke off in the middle of his song to ask for some water to drink, and grumbled most energetically at such dirty work. He then gave me an account of the morning's doings. After a thin layer of the black surface soil, it appeared they had come to a strata of thick yellow clay in which gold was often very abundant. This soil, from being so stiff, would require puddling, a work of which he did not seem to relish the anticipation. Before the day was over, a great number of buckets full of both soils were brought up and deposited in heaps near the tents. All, with the exception of the operatic Richard, seemed in good spirits, 
and were well satisfied with what had been done in so short a time. In the evening the other party of our shipmates arrived, and were busy fixing their tent at a distance of about forty yards from us. Frank and the other four, though pretty tired with the day's labour, lent a helping hand. The united efforts of nine speedily accomplished this business, after which an immense quantity of cold mutton, damper, and tea made a rapid disappearance, almost emptying my larder, which, by the by, was an old tea chest. We asked our friends their motive for leaving the old spot, and they declared they could stand the amiable female no longer. She grew worse and worse. Her tongue was sitch, observed the Scotchman, as wad drive only few beastie wild. She had regularly quarrelled with the two doctors, because they would not give her a written certificate that the state of her health required the constant use of spirits. She offered them two guineas for it, which they indignantly refused, and she then declared her intention of injuring their practice as much as possible, which she had power to do, as her tent was of an evening quite the centre of attraction, and her influence proportionably great. Pity tis that such a woman should be able to mar or make the fortunes of her fellow creatures. Tuesday, 28. The holes commenced yesterday were duly bottomed, but no nice pocket full of gold was the result. Our shipmates, however, met with better success, having found three small nuggets weighing two to four ounces each, at a depth of not quite five feet from the surface. Wednesday, 29. Today was spent in puddling and cradling. Puddling is on the same principle as tin dish washing, only on a much larger scale. Great wooden tubs are filled with the dirt and fresh water, and the former is chopped about in all directions with a spade, so as to set the metal free from the adhesive soil and pipe clay. Sometimes I have seen energetic diggers tuck up their trousers, off with their boots, step into the tub, and crush it about with their feet, in the same manner as tradition affirms, that the London bakers need their bread. Every now and again the dirty water is poured off gently, and with a fresh supply, which is furnished by a mate with a long-handled dipper from the stream or pool, you puddle away. The great thing is not to be afraid of overwork, for the better the puddling is, so much the more easy and profitable is the cradling. After having been well beaten in the tubs, the dirt is put into the hopper of the cradle, which is then rocked gently, whilst another party keeps up a constant supply of fresh water. In the right hand of the cradler is held a thick stick, ready to break up any clods which may be in the hopper, but which a good puddler would not have sent there. There was plenty of water near us, for a heavy rain during the night had filled several vacated holes, and as there were five pairs of hands, we hoped, before evening, 
greatly to diminish our mud heaps. Now for an account of our proceedings. Two large wooden tubs were firmly secured in the ground and four set to work puddling, whilst Frank busied himself in fixing the cradle. He drove two blocks into the ground. They were grooved for the rockers of the cradle to rest in, so as to let it rock with ease and regularity. The ground was lowered so as to give the cradle a slight slant, and thus enable the water to run off more quickly. If a cradle dips too much, a little gold may wash off with the light sand. The cradling machine, though simple in itself, is rather difficult to describe. In shape and size it resembles an infant's cradle, and over that portion of it where, if for a baby, a hood would be, is a perforated plate with wooden sides, a few inches high all round, forming a sort of box with the perforated plate for a bottom. This box is called the hopper. The dirt is here placed, and the constant supply of water, after well washing the stuff, runs out through a hole made at the foot of the cradle. The gold generally rests on a wooden shelf under the hopper, though sometimes a good deal will run down with the water and dirt into one of the compartments at the bottom, and to separate it from the sand or mud, tin dishwashing is employed. As soon as sufficient earth was ready, one began to rock, and another to fill the hopper with water. Richard continued puddling. William enacted Aquarius for him, whilst a fifth was fully occupied in conveying fresh dirt to the tubs, and taking the puddled stuff from them to the hopper of the cradle. Every now and then a change of hands was made, and thus passed the day. In the evening the products were found to be one small nugget, weighing a quarter of an ounce, and in gold dust eighty penny weights, ten grains being worth, at digging price for gold, about thirty-five shillings. This was rather less than we hard less calculated upon, and Richard signified his intention of returning to Melbourne. He could no longer put up with such ungentlemanly work in so very unintellectual a neighbourhood, with bad living into the bargain. These last words, which were pronounced sotto voce, gave us a slight clue to the real cause of his dislike to the diggings, though we did not thoroughly understand it till next morning. It originated in some bottles of mixed pickles, which he had in vain wanted Frank, who this week was caterer for the party, to purchase at four shillings a bottle, which some as we were all on economical thoughts intent, Frank refused to expend on any unnecessary article of food. This we learnt next morning at breakfast, when Richard congratulated himself on that being the last meal he should make of tea, damper, and mutton, without the latter having something to render it eatable. The puddling and cradling work had, I fancy, given the finishing stroke to his disgust. Poor Dick! He met with little commiseration. We could not but remember the thousands in the old country 
who would have rejoiced at the simple fare he so much despised. William, in his laughing way, observed that he was too great a pickle himself without buying fresh ones. Richard left us on Thursday morning, and with him went one of the other party, the house painter and decorator, who also found gold digging not so pleasant as he had expected. We afterwards learnt that before reaching Kilmore they separated. Richard arrived safely in Melbourne, and entered a gold broker's office at a salary of three pounds a week, which situation I believe he now fills, and as the governor, to use Richard's own expression, has not yet come to his senses, he must greatly regret having allowed his temper to be the cause of his leaving the comforts of home. His companion, who parted with Richard at Kilmore, was robbed of what little gold he had, and otherwise maltreated, whilst passing through the Black Forest. On reaching Melbourne he sold everything he possessed, and that not being sufficient, he borrowed enough to pay his passage back to England, where, doubtless, he will swell the number of those whose lack of success in the colonies, and vituperations against them, are only equalled by their unfitness ever to have gone there. Thursday was passed in puddling and cradling, with rather better results than on the first day. Still it was not to our satisfaction, and on Friday two pits were sunk, one was shallow, and the bottom reached without a speck of gold making its appearance. The other was left over till the morning. This was altogether very disheartening work particularly as the expenses of living were not small. There were many, however, much worse off than ourselves, though here and there a lucky digger excited the envy of all around him. Many were the tricks resorted to in order to deceive newcomers. Holes were offered for sale, in which the few grains that were carefully placed inside was all that the buyer gained by his purchase. A scene of this description was enacted this Friday evening, at a little distance from us. The principal actors in it were two in number. One sat a little way from his hole with a heap of soil by his side, and a large tin dish, nearly full of dirt, in his hand. As he swayed the dish to and fro in the process of washing, an immense number of small nuggets displayed themselves which fact in a loud tone he announced to his mate, at the same time swearing at him for keeping at work so late in the evening. This digger, who was shoveling up more dirt from the hole, answered in the same elegant language, calling him an idle good for naught. Every now and then he threw a small nugget to the tin dishwasher, loudly declaring he'd not leave off while them bright bits were growing thick as taters underground. Then be D.D. if I don't, shouted the other, and I'll sell the whole of two hundred yellow boys down. This created a great sensation among the bystanders, who during the time had collected round, and among whom was a party of three, evidently new chums. It shall go for a hundred and fifty, again shouted the washer giving a glance in the direction in which they stood, 
going for a hundred tin dish as well, letting some of the water run off and displaying the gold. This decided the matter, and one of the three stepped forward and offered the required sum. Money down, said the seller. These here fellows, or witness it's all regular. The money was paid in notes, and the purchasers were about to commence possession by taking the tin dish out of his hand. Wait till he's emptied. I promise you the dish, but not the stuff in it, and turning out the dirt into a small tub, the two worthies departed, carrying the tub away with them. Not a grain of gold did the buyers find in the pit next morning. Saturday, October 2. This day found the four hard at work at an early hour, and words will not describe our delight when they hit upon a pocket full of the precious metal. The pocket was situated in a dark corner of the hole, and William was the one whose fosicking knife first brought its hidden beauties to light. Nugget after nugget did that dirty soil give up. By evening they had taken out five pounds weight of gold. Foolish Richard, we all regretted his absence at this discovery. As the next day was the Sabbath, thirty-six hours of suspense must elapse before we could know whether this was but a passing kindness from the fickle goddess, or the herald of continued good fortune. This night, for the first time, we were really in dread of an attack, though we had kept our success quite secret, not even mentioning it to our shipmates, nor did we attend to do so until Monday morning, when our first business would be to mark out three more claims round the lucky spot, and send our gold down to the escort office for security. For the present, we were obliged to content ourselves with planting it, that is, burying it in the ground, and not a footstep passed in our neighbourhood without our imagining ourselves robbed of the precious treasure, and as it was Saturday night, the noisiest and most riotous at the diggings, our panics were neither few nor far between. So true it is that Richards entail trouble and anxiety on their possessor. End of Section 6